forgotten text contains some of the sweetest lessons and the prequels to the gospel deepen our appreciation for God's patient work spanning millennia. As we look to the book of Numbers, we can see the shadows of the cross and the sands from Mount Sinai to Kadesh to the bank of the Jordan River opposite Jericho. You can see Christ foreshadowed in Numbers. You can see Numbers fulfilled in Matthew. You can see the shadow of the cross and the Exodus sands. Highlands Community Church, would you like to study the book of Numbers with me? Let's open up to Numbers chapter one, beginning in verse one. I'll give us a survey of the first chapters of this book because your small group curriculum will take you to chapter nine, where you will see some of the instructions given for the Passover meal, which will sound familiar to those of you who have taken communion before. You can see here the Old Testament roots of New Testament practices. These instructions are important and they're deliberate Every word is here by God's design. The words of the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy tell the story of God's chosen people, Israel, in their time of exodus. Watch as the narrative oscillates from historical narrative, the telling of the story of what happened to God's people in the desert, to God speaking his law. We've already seen in the book of Exodus, the moral law established, the Ten Commandments given on Mount Sinai. That's where our journey begins. But moreover, God is going to specify some of the ceremonial and societal laws that were specific to Israel. You're going to see a theocracy, a real life theocracy in action. You're going to see God give instructions for how people are to make restitution one for another. My social justice warrior friend, you want to talk about social justice, here's a system that actually worked and it's given by God. Watch God establish a system of fairness for how people are to make restitution and confess their wrongdoing and make it up to their brother and sister when they fail them, when they wrong them. Watch God give Israel something that made them all the more distinctive from other nations of their day. Watch difficult texts come our way. Tough texts that have never been preached as far as I can find in sermon archives. I want to preach them. I'm going to show you how all these point forward to Jesus. Watch as this text shows Israel how to function as they moved across the desert, worshiping God as they went, following the presence of God. This picks up one year and one month the close of the events of the book of Exodus. According to Exodus chapter 40, verse two, it aligns with Numbers chapter one, verse one. We cover a lot of literal physical ground as the events of Numbers unfold. Take a look for the sake of the geographic context at this Google Earth sequence. As we move from Sinai, Mount Sinai, this is where Moses was given the 10 commandments by God. From here, it's the starting point. We're going to move northward. And we're going to come to, ultimately, the bank of the Jordan River opposite Jericho, right? There's Jerusalem. There's the Mediterranean Sea out there. Jericho is between Jerusalem and the Jordan River. This is where we end up. This is where Moses dies. This is where the events of Deuteronomy chapter 34 take place. That's where we're heading ultimately. But in the meantime... You will see the book of Numbers that takes us from Mount Sinai, that first mountain that we started at, to Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. 
The book of Numbers in chapter 33 lists 43 different stops as recorded by Moses. So from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea to ultimately the bank of the Jordan River, 43 different locations. I wanted to give that for geographic context. We literally have a long way to go. We have 36 chapters in the book of Numbers, 34 chapters in the book of Deuteronomy. And along the way, we are going to accommodate some of these more difficult texts to teach. It's titled Numbers because there are numbers in it. (laughs) There's a census taken at the beginning and there's a census taken at the end. And the narrative that connects the sensei, if you will, tells us more about the nature of God, shows us the roots of the gospel itself. Behold the cement beneath the cross. Look at Numbers chapter one, verse one with me. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt saying, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who were able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them by company, company by company. And thou shalt be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of his house of his fathers. So there are 12 tribes of Israel, and each of these tribes was to gather together in a certain place. They had what was called a standard, a banner. Basically, each tribe had a mascot. And as they would set up camp, moving through the desert, each tribe would gather under their mascot, under their standard, under their banner. And this was, this was brilliant, partly just for logistical reasons. Okay, like those of you, those of you who like, who fold your underwear, like you're gonna love this book. <laughs> because you're gonna see like God cares about the details. Like he cares a great deal about the little details. You can see that in the exhaustive instructions that he gets. I mean, it's also just way ahead of its time. The first of its kind when it comes to a book on organizational leadership like, can we take a minute and just appreciate the logistical fortitude of the book of Numbers? Because it shows this colossal group of people moving across landscapes. All right, maximum seating capacity at CenturyLink Field is roughly the size of the tribe of Judah. That's one of 12. All right, and this census only accounted for certain percentages of people. And there was no full census taken of the tribe of Levi, which had three sub-tribes. Like just the logistics alone of moving these people place to place in the desert was quite a feat. They, everything was based around the tent of meeting. Everything was built around God himself. God's at the center. Do you think there's a reason for that? The tent of meeting. God would speak with Moses the way that a man speaks with another. And when God's presence was upon the tent of meeting by day, there's a pillar of cloud above it. When God's presence was over the tent of meeting by night, a column of fire above it. And when God would move, they would move. They would break down the camp, follow God, and set up camp again. And they would set up camp the same way everywhere they went. That's just brilliant. Like no matter where you were in the desert, you know where to find whom. Even though you are several miles from where you were the last time, they set up camp the same way every time. You had the Levites and Moses and Aaron at the center around the tent of meeting. 
All right, and to the west came these tribes, the east came those tribes, the north came those tribes, the south came those tribes. Right, the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, they all knew where to set up. The tribe of Benjamin pointed westward. Right, all the other tribes lined up in a formation that was deliberate. So it, it's a tremendous book on organizational leadership. It's a difficult book contextually. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. Don't compare the cultural peculiarities in the book of Numbers to modern day Seattle culture. Compare them to Babylonian culture at the time. You understand? Compare them to Chemosh worship in, in Moab. Compare them to the worshipers of Molech in Chemosh. Compare them to pagan cultures of the same era. And you'll find that this put Israel way beyond the cutting edge of justice, of civility, of functionality. And you can also see just an, a brilliance to the basic leadership structure that's provided by God. Look at, look at, uh, at verse 47 with me of Numbers chapter 1. After each of these tribes is, is listed in a census, there's exception made for the Levites. But the Levites were not listed along with, the, uh, along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses saying, only the tribe of Levi you shall not list and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel, but appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and its furnishings and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. When the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. It's harsh. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard, right? Remember the mascot, the banner? But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there shall be no wrath upon the congregation of the people of Israel. This was to protect the people of Israel from the wrath of God. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So these are instructions for how they are to move. We haven't yet moved in the book of Numbers. That's gonna come up later. You're gonna see in chapter three this song of the journey that says when God would move, they would move. And what we've just seen is some of the instructions for the Levites particularly. They would watch, and when God would move, break down the tabernacle, break down camp, and move, and then follow God wherever God went. We would follow the fire by night, follow the cloud by day. So imagine it, imagine it. The tabernacle is set up, camp is there. Just a drill, we haven't yet rolled out as Camp Israel just yet, but we're practicing for it and we're ready so that when God is there speaking with Moses, the way that a man speaks with another, and when God moves, the cloud moves, the fire moves, the Levites are watching. Are the subtribes of the Levites with the Merites, the Kohathites, the Gershonites. And when the, when the, when the fire would move, is God, God's moving, God's moving, roll out. And they would break down the church, basically. Just follow God. Okay. This is where God has us. There's West, tribe of Benjamin, you're that way. Levites, roll up, set up camp. This is what they would do. Now, 
You think that there's a reason for that? And, and do you think that maybe, maybe you're unfamiliar with God if your version of God, whom you worship, the false God that you've invented in your mind, rather than the God you know, of the Bible, as he's revealed himself in his word, if you are the one who tells God where to set up camp, if you are the one who leads the way and God comes with you, you're not worshiping Yahweh. You're worshiping some other God because this God, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Israel, Jesus Christ himself in the Old Testament, he told Israel where to go. They followed the fire. They didn't tell the fire where to go. Have you done this? Pillar of fire. I want to go here. Come on. God, I would like you to call me here. Come here. God. God, I found a house on Zillow. <laughs> Bless it. God's not giving me what I asked for immediately. I'm persecuted. <laughs> Is it possible you don't know God? Because like as he has been for millennia, he goes. We follow him. He calls the shots. You go where he goes. At the end of every sermon, we as a church just proclaim, Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? It means that he is the boss, that he is in charge. We go where he goes. So it brought me here to you. I'm so grateful I followed the fire because it burns bright at Highlands Community Church, doesn't it? Would you follow the fire? Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Again, yeah. Praise God. You follow the fire. You set up camp where he says set up camp. You follow God. You don't appropriate the power of the gospel and take the gospel to give this Christian veneer to your own realization of the American dream. Ooh. No, you follow God's lead. That's what people have been doing for thousands of years. Okay, for millennia, God's people have followed God, not the other way around. Let's go to, to chapter, uh, let's go to chapter three of Numbers. All right, in the opening of chapter two, you see it reiterated. The people of Israel shall camp by their own standard. You see that the tribe of Judah had its own banner, that of a lion. And Nashon was the one who would bear the standard of the lion. Now in chapter three of Numbers, beginning in verse five, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. There it is again. Ow, man, that's harsh. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt... 
Remember that? It's a difficult text. Look at what God did. I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness, uh, wilderness of Sinai, saying, list the sons of Levi, by fathers, houses, and by clans, every male from a month old and upward you shall list. Babies matter to God. So Moses listed them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. You remember how the opening census was to take place among all the other tribes? It was to be a count of everybody 20 years old and older. Here, it's a month old and up. The Levites had a special place in God's heart for a specific role. As you see God disclose how ceremonial worship was to take place, he's taking care of his Levites. He takes care of the people who lead worship from the gifts that come in from the people who worship. Now, you've seen twice this difficult teaching that if anybody comes near the tent of meeting and the priesthood without authorization, he is to be put to death. Let's talk about this for a minute. As New Testament believers, we are spoiled by grace. Like we're so accustomed to the grace of God that we are spoiled. We've come to expect it, which means we don't really understand grace. <laughs> we feel entitled to it, which would mean it isn't actually grace at all. Like what happened between Old Testament and the New Testament? Like, did God have like a schizophrenic episode and, and just change his mind radically? No, no. I mean, the consequence for going into the tent of meeting unauthorized was death. We've seen it twice in three chapters. Why? It's because God is holy and he takes sin seriously. And he has lost none of his holiness in the Old Testament to the New Testament. God feels just as strongly about sin today as he did the day he inspired this teaching. That somebody who just enters the tent of meeting without authorization should be put to death. You may not like that. That doesn't make it untrue. My skeptical friend, I know you're here because we meet people at or Discover Highlands and they say, I'm Jesse's skeptical friend. <laughs> My skeptical friend, I know you're here. And I know there are passages in the book of Numbers that are used almost against Christianity. I've seen this before. I've debated atheists who have then just quoted numbers to me and were incredulous when I said, Amen. Because it's a difficult text. God's okay with you not being comfortable with his word. See, he's Lord. This is his word, and he has spoken. And not liking a biblical text doesn't make it untrue. But that is, that is, in, in, in no uncertain terms, precisely this structure of the argument used. I've seen this. Because I don't like this part of numbers, all of Christianity is untrue. Like, that's a form of the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. I don't like this, therefore it's untrue. Do you see the fallacy here? Right? This may butt up against your definition of God. But let me be the first to tell you, it's because you don't know God. 
Okay, you, you haven't been receiving God as he has revealed himself. You have fashioned God in your own likeness. You have been seeking after Barney the Purple Dinosaur. God has wrath for sin and the standard of holiness is high. The sentence for this sin is death. Because God's standards are high and he takes sin seriously. Now can I be the first to confess? I have committed worse sins than just entering the tent of meeting unauthorized. I've committed sins worthy of the death penalty. I've committed them. I am the man condemned by this verse. I am a sinner too. But by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I've been pardoned. Is it possible that God feels exactly the same way about sin today that he did then? It's not that God has lowered his standards. It's not that God has become tolerant of sin. No, that is blasphemous heresy and I rebuke it. It is not as though God has lowered the bar. It's that the cross is just that sufficient. Do you understand? If you are offended by this text, you overestimate yourself seriously and you seriously underestimate God's holiness. I am worthy of the death penalty for my sins. I deserve death for my sins. In fact, that's, that's what Romans 6.23 says. This is the wages of sin is death. And I've committed sins before. Have you committed sins before? then you and I all stand under the death sentence because we've all committed sins and so we all deserve death for our sins. That's the opening line of Romans 6, 23. But is anybody else here grateful that there's more to that verse? It says the wage of sin is death, just like this sin, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's not that God is compromised on his standards. It's that the cross is just that amazing. It's the atoning work of Jesus upon the cross is sufficient to atone for every last sin of those who believe in him. And he rose again from the dead after taking upon himself precisely this sentence, the death penalty. He went to the cross. He sentenced to death, though he's innocent. And then he resurrects from the dead and invites you and I into the covenant. That's how the gospel works. Do you see the shadows of the cross and the Exodus sands? The death penalty for anybody who dares approach the tent of meeting unauthorized. Jesus, were he to walk the sands physically and enter the tent of meeting, he would find nothing short of his own presence there. But he is the one who went to the cross for you and I. He took upon himself the same death penalty that is herein prescribed. This is the gospel. We deserve death for our sins, but Jesus took the death penalty for us. And if you would confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you would be saved. Therefore, salvation is not a miscarriage of justice. It is not God compromising his standard. It is God making a way for sinful, beloved man to be saved without having compromised one iota of his holiness. And so with God's integrity impeccably intact, you and I get to be with him forever. The standard is high. And you're gonna see exactly why as we continue in the book of Numbers, you're gonna see that worse things happen than just inadvertently wandering into the tent of meeting unauthorized. You're gonna see Israel forsake God and begin to worship Baal. 
And then part of Baal worship involves sexual immorality. And that sexual immorality began to take place in the tent of meeting. You can see that they didn't enforce this law, though, though, it, uh, though, though uttered twice by God in the opening chapters of Numbers, they neglected it in the coming decades. And then there's a, you're going to meet this really, really zealous priest named Phineas who had enough of that and began to enforce this text. And it's brutal, but it's just. Would you continue in the text with me? All right, as we move from here to, to chapter 5, Go to chapter five, verse five with me. Listen to the sound of Bible pages turning. Isn't that a beautiful sound? Some of you are doing it digitally. That counts too. <laughs> That's a beautiful sound. That's a dangerous sound. Sound of a biblically wise church. We have a lot of young people in our service today. Isn't that, can you praise God for the young people of Highlands Community Church? <laughs> praise God. You see, young people, like you're gonna hear about these difficult texts. You're gonna hear about them. My hope is that you hear about them from a leader at Highlands Community Church who loves you rather than from first semester, freshman year, intro to philosophy of religion professor who wants to proselytize you. Because the difference is that we'll teach it to you in context. We're gonna go you know, through the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy together. Your intro to philosophy of religion professor will pluck out the test of guilt for the woman accused of adultery, for example. And we'll use this from the book of Numbers to say, see, all of Christianity is untrue. But we're going to do this crazy thing, you know, called like basic, <laughs> basic context. You know, we're going to go through the book. You're going to follow a Bible reading plan. Grab a Bible reading plan in the lobby. You're going to see that there's more Bible there than there was in Ephesians. Buck up. Read your Bible. <laughs> and if you have questions, join a small group. If there's not a small group, talk to Pastor Alex, talk to Pastor Zeb, talk to Pastor Nick and start one. Use the Explore the Bible curriculum, you'll be in conjunction with what we're preaching here. And as we go through the book of Numbers, you're going to come upon these difficult texts. And rather than receiving it the way that Satan tempted Jesus in the desert in Matthew chapter 4, taking scripture out of context, you're going to hear it the way that Jesus responded to those temptations with scripture in context. I've never heard a lot of these passages preached, and I want to preach all of them. As we go to, as we go to, Verse five, chapter five, for confession and restitution, take a look at some of the origins of justice itself. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. See what I meant about like actual social justice? Look at the fairness built within this governmental system. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. Do you remember when we studied Abraham and Isaac and there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns so that God would provide? This ram of atonement was symbolic in nature. It was not the blood of this ram that God wanted. The author of Hebrews says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Rather, these sacrifices all pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice that would be made by Jesus upon the cross. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. 
Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. See, God's taking care of his priests. He's taking care of the Levites. So that through the act of worship, even though they wouldn't have necessarily a share in the promised land per se, they're taken care of by the people of Israel as the people of Israel go to worship. Now, take a look at chapter 6. Okay, skim over verses 1 through 21 because you're going you're gonna to read this in your reading plan and you're going to see some stuff that will help you make sense of some New, Testament, some New Testament teachings that may have been difficult before. Chapter 6, 1 through 21 is where we get the Nazareth vow from. The Nazareth vow was a vow that was entered into temporarily by some and for life by others. It was a vow that could be taken by men or women, the text says. And it included abstinence from alcohol and certain types of food, staying away from dead bodies, not cutting your hair. In Acts chapter 18, while Paul is on his missionary journeys, he has to stop for a haircut. And it sounds like this weird logistical detail. And Paul and company went to cuts by us. Right? Why is that there? It was because Paul had taken a vow similar to the Nazareth vow. And now he's released from his vow so he could cut his hair. This is good because he was probably looking pretty shaggy. Do you remember Samson, whose power, his strength was in his hair? When Delilah cut it, he lost that strength for a time. Why was that? It was because he would be a Nazareth from birth. That was Samson. John the Baptist led a similar life as well, like a Nazareth for life. One of the rules of the Nazareth vow was not to go through graveyards, not to be in proximity to a dead body because it would ceremonially defy the Nazareth. This is actually why in Jerusalem there's a strategically placed graveyard placed there by Muslims who are aware of this teaching and want to try to sabotage scriptural fulfillment. The Nazareth vow included not even going to your mother or father's funeral. Suddenly Matthew 8 21 and 22, when Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead, suddenly it makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Jesus was evoking the standard of the Nazareth vow here. So verses 1 through 21 will tell you the story of the Nazareth vow. Let's look at verse 22. This will sound very familiar if you've been to Highlands Community Church before. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Does that sound familiar? This is what Dr. Amandus would evoke. A shortened version of this same blessing is what we in our modern leadership today still carry on. It's, it's because of this blessing, sometimes called the Mosaic blessing. That's not right. The text says that Moses gave it to Aaron to give to the priest to give to the people. Again, do you see the organizational leadership structure here? It wasn't Moses doing all of this himself. It was Moses equipping the team of the people, the Levites and the priests who would go out and do this as well. So this blessing, which we iterate here at this church at the close of most of our worship services, comes from the book of Numbers. See how deep the roots are of the gospel itself. So shall, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Look at chapter seven. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, heads of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before the Lord, six wagons and 12 oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs and, one, uh, and for each one an ox. 
and they brought them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord said to Moses, accept these from them that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. And four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. Right, so the Gershonites, the Merarites, and the Kohathites, these were the three sub-tribes, three of the sub-tribes of the Levites themselves. And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. All right, so we've got a brand new grill and we're breaking it in. All right, we've got a brand new altar and it's being anointed here. And the chiefs offered their offerings before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offerings each chief each day for the dedication of the altar. He who offered his offering the first day was Nashon, son of Amminadab, of the tribe of Judah. When you come upon lists of names in the Bible, do you just like skip it? Sinners. <laughs> I'm gonna give you a reason why in your individual reading, you should at least read the names. This, this first offering, the first day, breaking in the brand new altar as it's anointed, as it's anointed was made by Nashon, the son of Amminadab. Would you just memorize those two names with me? Just Nashon, son of Amminadab. Do you see what tribe he was from? What tribe was he from? The tribe of Judah. Judah was a big tribe. As you look at the layout of the, the encampment, Judah is conspicuous. Lay, much later in Israel's history, Judah would even become its own separate nation. But it was huge. It's huge, over 70,000 people in one tribe. You had other tribes that were less than half the size of that. And Judah led the way. The first offering, the first day, the first altar was made by Nashon, the son of Amminadab, who, according to chapter 10, the text following the text you're going to study in small group, was the one who would bear the banner, the standard, the mascot, the flag for the tribe of Judah, which had a lion on it. So Nashon, son of Amminadab, would carry this, and we'd be the first one to make the first offering. Here are the closing verses of the book of Ruth. Ruth 4.18. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Verse 19, Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Does it sound familiar? Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. All right, so the very first sacrifice, the very first day before Israel rolled out of camp was made by Nashon, son of Amminadab. Apparently, the book of Ruth, which came later, written in the era of the book of Judges, this guy Nashon was an ancestor to King David himself. Now go to Matthew chapter one. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez by Zerah and Tamar, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, see? Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. These sound familiar. We've seen Numbers and Ruth now in Matthew. 
Now, as that chapter concludes, verses 15 and 16, Eliud fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Mathan, Mathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. We had the name Autumn Grace picked out before we were even married. My wife and I wanted to adopt a baby girl from China. And we went through all the pre-approval process and we went through our first pre-approval and we had that ready. We're gonna adopt a baby girl from China and we already knew what her name would be. Her name would be Autumn Grace. That's the name we had picked out. And then, find out we were pregnant. The baby girl, which would be our fifth child, which meant that adoption from China was gonna have to wait a long time. And so here, we finally have a baby girl, already know her name, Autumn Grace. We thought she'd be Chinese. We still love her. So Autumn Grace was born into this covenant. This name was already arranged for her. She didn't know anything about it the day that she was born. My bride had a designer outfit ready for her. And she didn't repeat an outfit for the first year of her life. Child is born beloved. Some of you guys have seen Autumn Grace and you can see that. You know we're spoiling her rotten. She didn't know anything about this. She was just born into it. She didn't earn this. It's just a covenant that was spoken over her before she was even born. You and I, like we didn't, we didn't write this story. We're just the recipients of it. This is a promise, a covenant that was made long before we were even born. We didn't earn this. This is a story, an epic that transcends millennia and continents and oceans. It is a deep promise with roots that go back millennia and they serve as the foundation for the cross. God unassailable in his holiness, utterly stringent and perfect in a sense of justice, gives the law in the Old Testament, and it is ruthless and nobody can abide by it, but the grace of God is poured out by Jesus in the New Testament through the cross that is planted right there in that cement. You can see the very first offering ever made on the tabernacle altar to break it in was by Nashon, son of Amminadab of the tribe of Judah. And it would be another descendant of Nashon, son of Amminadab, who would go and make the very last sacrifice that would ever be made. Jesus on the cross for you where you sit today. My skeptical friend, when you criticize the Bible, please do so with a proper degree of humility. Do you know how much older the book of Numbers is than the book of Matthew? How many millennia transpired between those events? How long the story has been happening? This is an epic, and its latest chapter transpires in the chair that you sit in. I took the numbers from the book of Numbers. And for those of you who are concerned, this is gonna be a boring series because it's a book called Numbers. I want to encourage you to write out these numbers, play games with these numbers, because I believe there's intentionality to them. I took the numbers and numbers, the number of every tribe, and I totaled them in their layout, in their encampment, in the tabernacle, as prescribed in the text that we've just surveyed, that you're going to read in your individual reading plan. Would you like to see what shape they were making when they set up their camp? Take a look at this. This is the encampment of the Israelites as prescribed in the book of Numbers. The prominence of the tribe of Judah makes for a cross. Opposite that, leading up to Benjamin, which pointed westward, was the shortest of the branches of the encampment. It's not quite a perfect cross. 
So you can see that one arm is longer than the other. But here are the tribes of Israel by their numbers to show as they set up camp and moved across the desert, they were making a cross everywhere they went. They didn't know what a cross was yet. Crucifixion wouldn't be invented for millennia later. But everywhere they went, this is the camp that they set up and tore down. Do you see how deep the legacy of the gospel goes? Do you see the cement beneath the cross in the book of Numbers? Do you see the shadow of the cross in the sands of the Exodus? As we read the book of Numbers, we see nothing short of the prequel to the gospel itself, from the sands of the Exodus to the seat you're sitting in now. So, you feel the weight of the mantle of evangelism? Christianity has only ever always been one generation of failed evangelism away from extinction. And yet it has persisted for thousands of years and now you receive it. You know it because it was told to you. Who told it to the person who told it to them? All of it traces back thousands of years to this, the true story whose latest chapter transpires in your heart because that exact same spirit that inspired this word to Moses is the one that's drawing upon your heart right now. That exact same spirit of God who has decreed the death penalty for sin took upon himself that exact penalty which he decreed. He resurrected from the dead in victory over it. And today, as New Testament believers, we have Romans 10, 9. If you, my fellow sinner, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's only possible, 1 Corinthians says, by the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that inspired this, the same Spirit that moved in fire and flame and smoke across the desert, guiding the Israelites through every event described in the book of Numbers. If you would, with me, by the compulsion of that same spirit, tell God you believe him, you'll be saved today. God takes sin seriously, as we've seen in this text. His standard remains utterly unmoved, but his grace abounds more and more through the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you tell God you believe him? Would you tell him you believe him when he wrote John 3, 16, that he loves you. He loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. Whoever would believe in him would not die but have everlasting life. Would you confess a verse that I've talked about here? That we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I've confessed that. Would you confess it too? And would you confess as well, Romans 6, 23, another verse we've talked about in this sermon, that the wages of sin is death. The death penalty is what is due for sins committed by you and I. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus alone. Would you pray John 14, 6 to God? It's when Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus himself makes the audaciously exclusive truth claims innate within Christianity. So would you tell Jesus you believe him? And what's the last verse I'm gonna say, Highlands Community Church? Romans 10, 9. Would you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. See the shadow of the cross and the sands of the Exodus. See it stand today in your place and profess your belief in Jesus and be saved. Join this rich, epic legacy of redemption and grace from God upon sinners like you and I. He made a way for us to be saved. And it began in numbers. And it's fulfilled with you right now. What's it going to be as that same spirit draws? Would you confess to Jesus your belief in him? Pray with me. God, 
I believe you. I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I confess, God, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess, God, that the wages of my sin is death. What I get in return for my sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, that you are the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through you, Jesus. So right here and now, drawn by the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and worship with us? Some of us for the very first time as brand new believers in Jesus Christ.